Chapter Nine of Different Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Different Girls, Harper's Novelettes. The Marrying of Esther by Mary M. Mears. Set there and cry. It's so sensible. And I ain't said that a June weddin' wouldn't be a little nicer. But what you goin' to live on? Joe can't get his money that soon. He said he thought he could manage. But I won't be married at all if I can't have it right. Well, you can have it right. All is, there are some folks in this town that if they don't calculate doing real well by you, I don't feel called upon to invite. I don't know what you mean, sobbed the girl. She sat by the kitchen table, her face hidden in her arms. Her mother stood looking at her tenderly, and yet with a certain anger. I mean about the presents. You've worked in the church, you've sung in the choir for years, and now it's a chance for folks to show that they appreciate it, and without their going to— Boxes of cake would be plenty if they weren't going to serve you any better than they did Ella Plummet. Esther Robinson lifted her head. She was quite large in a soft young way, and her skin was as pure as a baby's. But you can't know beforehand how they're going to treat me. Yes, I can know beforehand, too, and if you're set on next month, it's none too soon to be seen about it. I've a good mind to step over to Miss Lawrence's and Miss Stetson's this afternoon. Mother, you wouldn't ask em anything. Mrs. Robinson hung away her dish-towel, then she faced Esther. Of course I wouldn't ask em. There's other ways of finding out besides askin'. I'd bring the subject round by saying I hoped there wouldn't be many duplicates, and I'd get out of em what they intended givin' without seemin' to. Esther looked at her mother with a sort of fascination. Then we could give some idea about the refreshments, for I ain't a-going to have no elaborate layout without I do know. And it ain't because I grudge the money, either, she added, in swift self-defense. Mrs. Robinson was a good manager of the moderate means her husband had left her, but she was not parsimonious or inhospitable. Now she was actuated by a fierce maternal jealousy. Esther, despite her pleasant ways and her helpfulness, was often overlooked in a social way. This was due to her mother. The more pretentious laughed about Mrs. Robinson, and though the thrifty, contented housewife never missed the amenities which might have been extended to her, she was keenly alive to any slights put upon her daughter. And so it was now. Mrs. Lawrence, a rich, childless old lady, lived next door, and about four o'clock she went over there. The girl watched her departure doubtfully, but the possibility of not having a large wedding kept her from giving a full expression to her feelings. Esther had always dreamed of her wedding. She had looked forward to it just as definitely, before she met Joe Ellsworth, as after her engagement to him. There would be flowers and guests and feasting, and she would be the centre of it all, in a white dress and veil. She had never thought about there being any presents. Now, for the first time, she thought of them as an added glory— but her imagination did not extend to the separate articles or to their givers. Esther never pictured her Uncle Jonas at the wedding, yet he would surely be in attendance in his rough farmer clothes, his grizzled, keen old face towering above the other guests. She did not picture her friends as she really knew them. The young men would be fine gentlemen, and the girls ladies in wonderful toilets. As for herself and Joe, Hidden away in a bureau drawer, Esther had a poster of one of Froman's plays. It represented a bride and groom standing together in a drift of orange blossoms. Mrs. Robinson did not return at supper-time, and Esther ate alone. At eight o'clock, Joe Ellsworth came. 
She met him at the door, and they kissed in the entry. Then Joe preceded her in, and hung up his cap on a projecting knob of the what-not. That was where he always put it. He glanced into the dining-room and took in the waiting-table. "'Haven't you had supper yet?' "'Mother isn't home.' He came towards her swiftly. His eyes shone with a sudden elated tenderness. She raised her arm and turned away her face, but he swept aside the ineffectual barrier. When he let her go, she seated herself on the farther side of the room. Her glance was full of a soft rebuke. He met it, then looked down smilingly and awkwardly at his shoes. "'Where did you say your ma's gone?' "'She's gone to Miss Lawrence's and a few other places.' "'Oh, calling. Old Miss Norton goes about twice a year, and I ask her what it amounts to.' "'I guess he'll find Ma's calls'll unmount to something.' "'How's that?' he demanded. "'She's going to try and find out what they intend giving.' "'What they intend giving?' "'Yes, and without they intend giving something worth while, she says she won't invite em. And maybe we won't have a big wedding at all,' she finished pathetically. Joe did not answer. Esther stole an appealing glance at him. "'Does it seem a queer thing to do?' "'Well, yes, rather.' Her face quivered. She said, "'I'd done so much for Miss Lawrence.' "'Well, you have. And I've wished a good many times that you wouldn't. I'm sure I never knuckled to her, though she is my great-aunt.' "'I never knuckled to her, either,' protested Esther. "'You've done a sight more for her than I would have done, fixin' her dresses and things, and she with more money than anybody else in town. But your mother ain't going to call on everybody, is she?' he asked anxiously. "'Of course she ain't. Only she said—' "'If it was going to be in June—but I don't want it to be ever,' she added, covering her face. "'Oh, it's all right,' said Joe, penitently. He went over and put his arm around her. Nevertheless, his eyes held a worried look. Joe's father had bound him out to a farmer by the name of Norton until his majority, when the sum of seven hundred dollars, all the little fortune the father had left, together with three hundred more from Norton, was to be turned over to him. But Joe would not be twenty-one until October. It was going to be difficult for him to arrange for the June wedding Esther desired. He was very much in love, however, and presently he lifted his boyish cheek from her hair. "'I think I'll take that cottage of Lanham's. It's the only vacant house in the village, and he's promised to wait for the rent, so that confounded old Norton needn't advance me a cent.' Esther flushed. "'What do you suppose makes him act so?' she questioned, though she knew." Joe blushed, too. "'He don't like it, because I'm going to work in the factory when it opens. But Miss Norton and Sarah have done everything for me,' he added, decidedly. Up to the time of his engagement, Joe had been in the habit of showing Sarah Norton an occasional brotherly attention, and he would have continued to do so, had not Esther and Mrs. Robinson interfered. Esther, from girlish jealousy, and her mother, because she did not approve of the family, she said." She could not say she did not approve of Sarah, for there was not a more upright, self-respecting girl in the village. But Sarah, because of her father's miserliness, often went out for extra work when the neighbors needed help, and this was the real cause of Mrs. Robinson's feeling. Unconsciously, she made the same distinction between Sarah Norton and Esther that some of the more ambitious of the village mothers made between their girls and her own daughter. Then it was common talk that old Jim Norton, for obvious reasons, was displeased with Joe's matrimonial plans, but Mrs. Robinson professed to believe that the wife and daughter were really the ones disappointed. Now Esther began twisting a button of Joe's coat. 
"'I don't believe Mother'll ask either of em to the wedding,' said she. When Mrs. Robinson entered, Esther stood expectant and fearful by the table. Her mother drew up a chair and reached for the bread. "'I didn't stop anywhere for supper. You've had yours, ain't you?' The girl nodded. "'Joe come?' "'He just left.' but Mrs. Robinson was not to be hurried into divulging the result of her calls. She remained massively mysterious. Esther began to wish she had not hurried Joe off so unceremoniously. After her first cup of tea, however, her mother asked for a slip of paper and a pencil. "'I want that pencil in my machine drawer that writes black, and any kind of paper will do,' she said. Esther brought them, then she took up her sewing. She was not without a certain self-restraint. Mrs. Robinson, between her sips of tea, wrote. The soft gurgle of her drinking annoyed Esther, and she had a tingling desire to snatch the paper. After a last misdirected placing of her cup in her plate, however, her mother looked up and smiled triumphantly. "'I guess we'll have to plan something different than boxes of cake. Listen to this. Miss Lawrence—no, I won't read that yet. Miss Manning, I went in there because I thought about her not inviting you when she gave that library party.' one salt and pepper with rosebuds painted on em. Esther leaned forward, her face was crimson. "'You needn't look so,' remonstrated her mother. "'It was all I could do to keep from laughing at the way she acted. I just mentioned that we were only going to invite those you were indebted to, and she went and fetched out that salt and pepper. I believe she said they was intended in the first place for some relative that didn't get married in the end.' The girl made an inarticulate noise in her throat. Her mother continued in a loud, impressive tone. Miss Stetson, something worked. She hasn't quite decided what. But she's going to let me know about it. Jane Watson. You didn't go there, mother. Mrs. Robinson treated her daughter to a contemptuous look. I guess I've got sense. Jane was at Miss Stetson's, and when I came away she went along with me, and insisted that I stop and see some lamplighters she got to copy from, those paper balls. She seemed afraid a string of those wouldn't be enough, but I told her how pretty they was and how much you'd be pleased. "'I guess I'll think a good deal more of em than I will of Miss Manning's salt and pepper.' Esther was very near tears. "'Next I went to the Rogerses, and they've about concluded to give you a lamp, and they can afford to. "'Then that's all the places I've been except to Miss Lawrence's, and she—' Mrs. Robinson paused for emphasis. "'She's going to give you a silver tea-set.' Esther looked at her mother, her red lips apart. "'That was the first place I called, and I said pretty plain what I was getting at. But after I knew about the water set, that settled what kind of wedding we'd have. But the next morning, the world looked different. Her rheumatic foot ached, and that always affected her temper. But when they sat down to sew, the real cause of her irascibleness came out. Miss Lawrence wasn't any more civil than she need be, she remarked. I guess she decided she'd got to do something, being related to Joe. She said she supposed you were expecting a good many presents, and I said no, you didn't look for many and there were some that you'd done a good deal for, that you knew better than to expect anything from. I was mad. Then she turned kind of red and mentioned about the water-set. And in the afternoon a young girl acquaintance added to Esther's perturbation. I just met Susan Rogers, she confided to the other, and she said they hated to give that lamp, but they supposed they were in for it. Esther was not herself for some days. All her pretty dreams were blotted out, and a morbid embarrassment took hold of her, but she was roused to something like her old interest when the presents began to come in, and she saw her mother's active preparations for the wedding. 
the more so, as over the village seemed to have spread a pleasant excitement concerning the event. Presents arrived from unexpected sources, so that invitations had to be sent afterwards to the givers. Women, who had never crossed the Robinson threshold, came now like Hindu gift-bearers before some deity whom they wished to propitiate. Meeting there, they exchanged droll, half-deprecating glances. Mrs. Robinson's calls had formed the subject of much laughing comment, but weddings were not common in Marshfield, and the desire to be bidden to this one was universal. It spread like an epidemic. Mrs. Robinson was at first elated. She overlooked the matter of duplicates and accepted graciously every article that was tendered, from a patchwork quilt to a hem-stitched handkerchief. "'You can't have too many of some things,' she remarked to Esther. But later she reversed this statement." Match-safes, photograph-frames, and pretty nothings accumulated to an alarming extent. "'Now that's the last pincushion you're going to take,' she declared, as she returned from answering a call at the door one evening. "'There's fourteen in the parlor now. Some folks seem to have gone crazy on pincushions.' She grew confused, and the next day she went into the parlor, which, owing to the nature of the display, resembled a booth at a church fair, and made an accurate list of the articles received. When she emerged, her large, handsome face was quite flushed. "'Little wobbly, fall-down things, most of em. It'll take you a week to dust your house if you have all those things standin' round.' "'Well, I ain't going to put none of em away,' declared Esther. "'I like ornaments.' "'Glad you do. You've got enough of em, land knows.' "'Ornaments.' The very word seemed to incense her. "'I guess you'll find there's something needed besides ornaments when you come right down to livin'. For one thing, you're awful short of dishes and bedding, and you can't ever have no company unless—she added with withering sarcasm—you give em little vases to drink out of, and put em to bed under a picture-drape with a pincushion or a scent-bag for a pillar. And from that time Mrs. Robinson accepted no gift without first consulting her list. It became known that she looked upon useful articles with favor, and brooms and flat-irons and bright tinware arrived constantly. Then it was that the heterogeneous collection began to pall upon Esther. The water-set had not yet been presented, but its magnificence grew upon her, and she persuaded Joe to get a spindle-legged stand on which to place it, although he could not furnish the cottage until October, and had gone in debt for the few necessary things. She pictured the combination first in one corner of the little parlour, then another, finally in a window where it could be seen from the road. Esther's standards did not vary greatly from her mother's. She had a bewildered sense that they were somehow stepping from the beaten track of custom. On one or two points, however, she was firm. The few novels that had come within her reach she had conned faithfully. Thus, even before she had a lover, she had decided that the most impressive hour for a wedding was sunrise, and had arranged the procession which was to wend its way toward the church. And in these matters her mother, respecting her superior judgment, stood staunchly by her. Nevertheless, when the eventful morning arrived, she was bitterly disappointed. She had set her heart on having the church bell rung, and overlooked the fact that the meeting-house bell was cracked, till Joe reminded her. Then the weather was unexpectedly chilly. A damp fog, not yet dispersed by the sun, hung over the barely awakened village, and the little flower-girl shivered. She had a shawl pinned about her, and when the procession was fairly started she tripped over it, and there was a halt, while she gathered up the roses and geraniums in her little trembling hands, and thrust them back into the basket. Celia Smith tittered. Celia was the bridesmaid, 
and was accompanied by Joe's friend, red-headed Harry Baker. And Mrs. Robinson and Uncle Jonas, who were far behind, made the most of the delay. Mrs. Robinson often explained that she was not a good walker, and her brother-in-law tried jocularly to help her along, although he used a cane himself. His weather-beaten old face was beaming, but it was as though the smiles were set between the wrinkles, for he kept his mouth sober. He had a flower in his buttonhole which gave him a festive air, despite the fact that his clothes were distinctly untidy. Several buttons were off. He had no wife to keep them sewed on. Esther had given but one glance at him. Her head under its lace veil bent lower and lower. The flounces of her skirt stood out above her like the delicate bell of a hollyhock. She followed the way falteringly. Joe, his young eyes radiant, inclined his curly head towards her, but she did not heed him. The little procession was an awkward garment which hampered and abashed her, but just as they reached the church the sun crept above the treetops, and from the bleakness of dawn the whole scene warmed into the glorious beauty of a June day. The guests lost their aspect of chilled waiting. Esther caught their admiring glances. For one brief moment her triumph was complete. The next she had overstepped its bounds. She went forward, scarcely touching Joe's arm. Her great desire became a definite purpose. She whispered to a member of her Sunday-school class, a little fellow. He looked at her wonderingly at first, then darted forward and grasped the rope which dangled down in a corner of the vestibule. He pulled with a will, but even as the old bell responded with a hoarse clank, his arms jerked upward, and with curls flying and fat legs extended, he ascended straight to the ceiling. "'Oh, Suze, the Lord's taking him right up!' shrieked an old woman. The sepulchral explanation of the broken bell, but serving to intensify her terror. And there were others who refused to understand, even when his sister caught him by the heels. She was very white, and she shook him before she set him down. Too scared to realize where he was, he fought her, his little face quite red, and his blouse strained up so that it revealed the girth of his round little body in its knitted undershirt. "'Let me go!' he whimpered. "'She telled me to do it!' His words broke through the general amazement, like a stone through the icy surface of a stream. The guests gave way to mirth. Some of the young girls averted their faces. They could not look at Esther. The matrons tilted their bonneted heads towards one another and shook softly. "'I thought at first it might be a part of the show,' whispered one. "'But I guess it wasn't planned.' Esther was conscious of every whisper and every glance. Shame seemed to engulf her, but she entered the church holding her head high. When they emerged into the sunshine again she would have been glad to run away, but she was forced to pause while her mother made an announcement. "'The refreshments will be ready by ten, she said, and as we calculate to keep the tables running all day, those that can't come one time can come another. After which there was a little rice-throwing, and the young couple departed. The frolic partly revived Esther's spirits, but her mother, toiling heavily along with a hard day's work before her, was inclined to speak her mind. Her brother-in-law, however, restrained her. "'Seems to me I never seen anything quite so cute as that little feller a-ringin' that bell for the wedding. Who put him up to it, anyhow?' "'Why, Esther. She was so set on having a chime, as she called it. "'Well, it was a real good idea. A real good idea.' and he kept repeating the phrase, as though in a perfect ecstasy of appreciation. When Esther reached home, she and Joe arranged the tables in the side yard, but when the first guest turned in at the gate, her mother sent her to the house. "'Now you go into the parlour and rest. You can just as well sit under that dove as stand under it,' she said. 
the girl started listlessly to obey but the next words revived her like wine i declare it's miss lawrence and she's bringin that water set she hung on to it till the last minute esther flew to her chamber and donned her veil which she had laid aside then sped downstairs but when she passed through the parlor she put her hands over her eyes she wanted to look at the water set first with joe he was no longer helping her mother and she fluttered about looking for him the rooms would soon be crowded and then there would be no opportunity to examine the wonderful gift she darted down a footpath that crossed the yard diagonally it led to a gap in the stone wall which opened on a lane esther and joe had been in the habit of walking here of an evening it was scarcely more than a grassy way overhung by leaning branches of old fruit trees but it was a short cut to the cottage joe had rented now esther's feet of their own volition carried her here she slid through the opening joe she called and her voice had the tremulous cadence of a bird summoning its mate but it died away in a little smothered cry for not a rod away was joe and sitting on a large stone was sarah norton they had their backs towards her and were engaged in such an earnest conversation that they did not hear her sarah's shoulders moved with her quick breathing she had a hand on joe's arm esther stood staring her thin drapery circling about her and her childish face pale then she turned with a swift impulse to escape but again she paused her eyes riveted in the opposite direction from where she stood the back door of her future home was visible and two men were carrying out furniture involuntarily she opened her lips to call joe but no sound came yes they had the bureau they would probably take the spindle-legged stand next a strong protective instinct is part of possession and to esther that sight was as a magnet to steel down the grassy lane she sped, but so lightly that the couple by the wall were as unobservant of her as they were of the wind stirring the long grass. Sarah Norton rose. I run every step of the way to get here in time. Please, Joe, she panted. He shook his head. It's real kind of you and your mother, Sarah, but I guess I ain't going to touch any of the money you worked for and earned, and I can't help but think, when I talk to Lanham, I tell you, you can't reason with him in his state. "'Well, I'll raise it somehow.' "'You'll have to be quick about it, then,' she returned concisely. "'He'll be here in a few minutes, and it's cashed down for the first three months, or he'll let the other party have it.' "'But he promised.' "'That don't make any difference. He's drunk, and he thought father had offered to make you an advance. But father just told him to come down here, that you were being married, and said he'd poke all your things out in the road without you paid.' The young man turned. Sarah blocked his way. She was a tall, good-looking girl, somewhat older than Joe, and she looked straight up into his face. "'See here, Joe. You know what makes father act so, and so do I, and so does mother, and mother and I want you should take this money. It'll make us feel better.' Sarah flushed, but she looked at him as directly as if she had been his sister. Joe felt an admiration for her that was almost reverence. It carried him, for the moment, beyond the consideration of his own predicament. "'No, I don't know what makes him act so either,' he cried hotly. "'Oh, Lord, Sarah, you shan't say such a thing.' She interrupted him. "'Won't you take it?' He turned again. "'You're just as good as you can be, but I can manage some way.' "'I'll watch for Lanham,' she answered quietly, "'and keep him talking as long as I can. He's just drunk enough to make a scene.' Halfway to the house, Joe met Harry Barker. "'What did she want?' he inquired curiously. 
When Joe told him, he plunged into his pocket and drew out two dollars, then offered to go among the young fellows and collect the balance of the amount. But Joe caught hold of him. Think of something else. I could explain to the boys. You go and ask Mrs. Lawrence if she won't step out on the porch, the other commanded. She's my great-aunt, and I never asked anything of her before. But Mrs. Lawrence was not sympathetic. She told Joe flatly that she never lent money, and that the water-set was as much as she could afford to give. "'It ain't paid for, though,' she said, "'and if you'd rather have the money, I suppose I can send it back. But it seems to me that I shouldn't have been in such an awful hurry to get married. I should have waited a month or so till I had something to get married on. But you're just like your father, never had no calculation. Do you want I should return that silver?' Joe hesitated. It was an easy way out of the difficulty. Then a vision of Esther rose before him, and the innocent preparations she had been making for the display of the gift. "'No,' he answered shortly. And Mrs. Lawrence, with a shake of the shoulders, as though she threw off all responsibility in her young relative's affairs, bustled away. "'I'm going to keep that water set if everything else has to go,' he declared to the astonished Harry. "'Let him set me out in the road. I guess I'll get along.' He had a humorous vision of himself and Esther trudging forth with the water set between them to seek their fortune. He flung himself from the porch and was confronted by Jonas Ingram. The old fellow emerged from behind a lilac bush with a guilty yet excited air. "'Young man, I ain't given to eavesdropping, but I was strolling along here and I heard it all, and as I was calculating to give my niece a present—' He broke off and laid a hand on Joe's arm. "'Where is that dod-blasted fool of a Lanham? I'll pay him, then I'll break every bone in his dumb body!' he exclaimed, waxing profane. "'Come here, disturbin' decent folks' weddings. Where is he?' He started off down the path, striking out savagely with his stick. Joe watched him a moment, then put after him, and Harry Barker followed. "'If this ain't the liveliest weddin'!' Nevertheless, he was disappointed in his expectations of an encounter. When the trio emerged through the gap in the wall, they found only Sarah Norton awaiting them. "'Lanham's come and gone,' she announced. "'No, I didn't give him a thing except a piece of my mind,' she answered, in a response to a look from Joe. "'I told him that he was acting like a fool, that father was in for a thousand dollars to you in the fall, and that you would pay then, as you promised, and that he'd better clear out.' "'Oh, if I could just get a hold of him,' muttered Jonas Ingram. "'That seemed to sober him,' continued the girl, "'but he said he wasn't the only one that had got scared, that Merrill was going for his tables and chairs. But Lanham said he'd run up to the cottage, and if he was there he'd send him off.' You see, father threw out as if he wasn't owing you anything, she added in a lower voice, and that's what stirred him up. Joe turned white in a sudden heat of anger, the first he had shown. I'll stir him, he began. Then his eyes met hers. He reddened. Oh, Sarah, I'm ever so much obliged to you. It was nothing. I guess it was lucky I wasn't invited to the wedding, though. She laughed and started away, leaving Joe abashed. She glanced back. I hope none of this foolishness will reach Miss Ellsworth's ears, she called in a friendly voice. I hope it won't, muttered Joe fervently, and stood watching her till the old man pulled his sleeve. Lanham may not keep his word to the girl. Best go down there, hadn't we? The young man made no answer, but turned and ran. He longed for someone to wreak vengeance on. The other two had difficulty in keeping up with him. The first object that attracted their attention was the bureau. It was standing beside the back steps. Joe tried the door. It was fastened. He drew forth the key and fitted it into the lock, but still the door did not yield. 
He turned and faced the others. Someone's in there. Jonas Ingram broke forth into an oath. He shook his cane at the house. Someone's in there, and they've got the door bolted on the inside, continued Joe. His voice had a strange sound even to himself. He seemed to be looking on at his own wrath. He strode around to a window, but the blinds were closed. The blinds were closed all over the house. Every door was barred. Whoever was inside was in utter darkness. Joe came back and gave the door a violent shake. Then they all listened. But only the pecking of a hen along the wall broke the silence. "'I'll get a crowbar,' suggested Harry, scowling in the fierce sunlight. Jonas Ingram stood with his hair blowing out from under his hat, and his stick grasped firmly in his gnarled old hand. He was all ready to strike. His chin was thrust out rigidly. They both pressed close to Joe, but he did not heed them. He put one shoulder against a panel. Every muscle was set. "'Whoever you are, if I have to break this door down—' There was a soft commotion on the inside, and the bolt was drawn. Joe, with the other two at his heels, fairly burst into the darkened place, just in time to see a white figure dart across the room and cast itself in a corner. For an instant they could only blink. The figure wrapped its white arms about some object. "'You can have everything but this table. You can't have this!' The words ended in a frightened sob. "'Esther!' "'Oh, Joe!' she struggled to her feet, then shrank back against the wall. "'Oh, I didn't know it was you. Go away, go away!' "'Why, Esther, what do you mean?' He started towards her, but she turned on him. "'Where is she?' "'Where's who?' She did not reply, but standing against the wall she stared at him with a passionate scorn. "'You don't mean Sarah Norton?' asked Joe, slowly. Esther quivered. Why, she came to tell me of the trouble her father was trying to get me into. But how did you come here, Esther? How did you know anything about it? She did not answer. Her head sank. How did you, Esther? I saw—I saw you in the lane, she faltered, then caught up her veil as though it had been a pinafore. Joe went up to her, and Jonas Ingram took hold of Harry Baker, and the two stepped outside, but not out of earshot. They were still curious. They could hear Esther's sobbing voice at intervals. I tried to make them stop, but they wouldn't, and I slipped in past them and bolted the door, and when you came, I thought it was them, and—oh, ain't they our things, Joe? The old man thrust his head in at the door. Yes, he roared, then withdrew. And won't they take the table away? No, he roared again. I'd just like to see them. Esther wept harder. Oh, I wish they would. I ought to give them up. I didn't care for them after I thought—that—it was just that I had to have something I wouldn't let go, and I tried to think only of saving the table for the water-set. "'Come mighty near bein' no water-set,' muttered Jonas to himself. Then he turned to his companion. "'Young man, I guess they don't need us no more,' he said. When he regained his sister-in-law's, he encountered that lady carrying a steaming dish. Guests stood about under the trees or sat at the long tables. For mercy's sakes, Jonas, have you seen Esther? She made fuss enough about having that dove fixed up in the parlor, and she and Joe ain't stood under it a minute yet. That's a fact, chuckled the old fellow. They ain't stood under no dove of peace yet. They're just about ready to now, I reckon. And up through the lane, all oblivious, the lovers were walking slowly. Just before they reached the gap in the wall, they paused by common consent. Cherry and apple trees drooped over the wall, 
These had ceased blossoming, but a tangle of wild rose-bushes was all a blush. It dropped a thick harvest of petals on the ground. Joe bent his head, and Esther, resting against his shoulder, lifted her eyes to his face. All unconsciously she took the pose of the woman in the Froman poster. They kissed, and then went on slowly. End of The Marrying of Esther by Mary M. Mears